Blog Talk Radio. Mr. President, we have a national emergency. This is one of the things that we can shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, normally you can't do that. All of a sudden these trees started moving out of the way. They parted for me. And then I came out into this opening and there where I saw Jesus Christ. Time News. I'm W. Dean Shook, and I'm more than happy to bring you the news that the corporate-owned media doesn't seem to want to touch. We're going to have an interesting conversation today about Captagon, but before we do that, I'd like to set this up. So we're going to start with a couple other things here first. You know, when the new House Speaker, Paul Ryan, took office, he successfully pushed through Congress his $1.1 trillion spending bill that funds visas for nearly 300,000 temporary and permanent Muslim migrants over the next 12 months. And after Paul Ryan funds the visas for these 300,000 migrants, House Republicans gave him a standing ovation. The very people that you put into office to make changes gave him a standing ovation. Well, this omnibus bill also funded sanctuary cities, illegal alien tax credits. It changed federal law to allow for a massive increase in this low-skilled H-2B workers visa program. This is an immigration expansion opposed by more than 9 in 10 GOP voters. Well, Ryan laid out his policy, which he describes as a bold, pro-growth agenda. And in the Republican address that followed that, The policies, which read like the usual Republican cliches espoused throughout Ryan's career, he focused on five areas, health care, poverty and opportunity, constitutional authority, national security, job and economic growth. However, he avoided addressing the subject of immigration when he was discussing this national security priorities. Now, while Ryan notes that Republicans will boost national security, By focusing on building a 21st century military, he makes no mention of stopping this large-scale visas to Muslim migrants. 
and Ryan's office makes no mention of easing or reversing this unprecedented flow of low-wage labor into American communities. Nor did Ryan's office explain how he plans to fix our tax code to rein in this regulatory state while imposing large numbers of immigrants who favor big government policies. There's a 2012 Pew Hispanic survey that found that 75% of Hispanics and 55% of Asians prefer bigger government that provides more services, as opposed to a smaller government that provides fewer services. And a separate Pew poll reports that 68% of Muslims in America say they prefer bigger government providing more services over a smaller government providing fewer services. Ryan goes on to say, to deny Muslims the right to practice their religion freely in America goes against who we are as a nation. Now, I don't want to harp on this, but I find it necessary to address this issue again. Because even if our elected officials are clueless, doesn't mean that we the people need to live in the dark too. So let's see if this actually goes against our values as Americans. WND is reporting today. Syrian refugee surge. Refugees flood into the U.S. at a rate of 358 a week as this Islamic invasion begins. And it reads like this. A flood of Muslim refugees from Syria, an average of 358 a week to be exact, is expected to arrive in the United States between now and the end of the fiscal year on September 30th. Well, the Obama administration has decided to implement a surge in Syrian refugees fast-tracking the arrival of these fleeing civil war in their country to make good on his commitment of bringing 10,000 by the end of the fiscal year 2016. He says the surge is needed because the administration has only delivered 1,400 in the last six and a half months of this year. Well, the Obama administration's scripted answer for anyone who questioned the ability to screen Syrian refugees was that they are the most thoroughly vetted and they're going through an arduous process that takes 18 to 24 months to complete. But the process was taking longer than they expected and it's making it impossible for poor Mr. Obama to make good on his promise to the United Nations to admit at least 10,000 Syrians in fiscal 2016. So to fulfill this promise, the administration has now decided to expedite the process, cutting the screening period from 18 to 24 months down to three months. Administration officials have set up a special screening center in Jordan where they will interview potential Syrian refugees at a rate of 600 a day. And I'm sure they'll be very thorough at 600 a day. They did this to realize the goal of 10,000 refugees coming in the U.S. by September 30th. Our government will need to deliver 8,589 by that date, which is an average of 358 a week. Several GOP congressmen held hearings and sent letters to Obama voicing their opposition to the Syrian refugee program. But in the end, Speaker Ryan put together this spending bill that fully funded Obama's expanded refugee program. The program will bring 85,000 refugees into the U.S. from all countries in fiscal 2016. About half of them coming from majority Muslim nations such as Syria, Somalia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. 
The total is scheduled to increase again in 2017 to 100,000. And the top states for these Syrian refugees seems to be Michigan, California, Pennsylvania, and Illinois. So do these refugees pose a threat? Here is what we face if we bring these people in and make them citizens. Listen to this clip. For most of the summer, Amir Mashal has been training to drive big rigs, his education coming at taxpayer expense. Three weeks ago, he got his Class A commercial driver's license, which will now allow him to drive 18-wheelers. And yet, Amir Mashal, a U.S. citizen, is not even allowed to step onto a plane. He's on the no-fly list. A letter from Homeland Security to Mashal last December makes this chilling statement. It's been determined that you, Amir Mashal, are an individual who represents a threat of engaging in or conducting a violent act of terrorism and who is operationally capable of doing so. The evidence for that statement is classified, blacked out. And if you don't think a semi-truck loaded with explosives could do significant damage, just ask the Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or the people of Oklahoma City. Amir Mashal has been on the FBI's radar since 2007, when he was captured leaving an al-Qaeda training camp in Somalia. Last summer, he was kicked out of a Bloomington mosque for radicalizing young people. A half dozen of those young people have since been arrested for attempting to travel to Syria to join ISIS. Last May, we attempted to talk to Mashal about the ISIS recruits. Hi, Amir. Hi, Tom Lydon here from Fox 9. I'd like to talk to you about your connection with these kids. Excuse me? You don't have to tell. Well, you seem to be the guy who connects the dots with all these kids. Excuse me? You can talk to my lawyer. Thank you. Talk to your lawyer? His lawyer with the ACLU points out that Mr. Michal has never been charged with a crime and is simply trying to get a job so he can build a life for his family, including a baby. In a statement last May, Michal said, I would never suggest that anyone join ISIS or any other group that kills innocent people nor would I ever provide money to do so. Which begs the question, who is an innocent and who is not? The more critical question may be where Amir Mishal is the greatest risk, flying commercial aviation or behind the wheel of a semi. The Minnesota Department of Public Safety says there is nothing in state or federal law that would allow them to deny Amir Mishal a Class A license. Their hands are tied. He has no criminal record, even though he's on the no-fly list. We've also learned that Michelle is now applying for an additional endorsement that will allow him to drive school buses. For the Fox 9 Investigators, I'm Tom Lydon. Now, what was very interesting about this clip is the fact that he's on the no-fly list. When Mr. Obama says it's ridiculous that someone on the no-fly list can walk in and buy a gun, even though over 750 Muslims work for the Department of Homeland Security who are on the no-fly list. What about them? Why do they even work for Homeland Security? Well, Mr. Obama has continuously asserted that Islam was woven into the fabric of the United States since its founding. Obama claims Muslims have made significant contributions in the building of this nation. Let's see if that's true. You know, our Constitution says we're all allowed to practice our religion freely. Freedom of religion, right? I think the real question is, when our Constitution was drafted, did the Founding Fathers know anything about Islam? And was Islam considered as part of the freedom of religion? Well, during the period of the American Revolution and the early Republic, American merchants and sailors were under constant threat from North African pirates, 
from the Muslim powers known as the Barbary States. More than one million Europeans were captured and enslaved by Muslim raiders between the 16th and the 18th century. Jefferson was well acquainted with this history. In Jefferson's initial draft of the Declaration of Independence, he criticized the Christian King of Britain for engaging in slavery. As the late Christopher Hutchins observed, the allusion to Barbary piracy seems inescapable, but Jefferson also had first-hand experience with the motivations of Islamic slavers. While in London, Jefferson and John Adams spoke to the ambassador of Tripoli and questioned him on why these Barbary pirates thought that they should war on a nation that had never done harm to them. The Muslim ambassador's response was, it's written in their Quran that all nations who should not have knowledge of Islam's authority were sinners, that it was their duty to make war on them and to make slaves of all they could and take prisoners. It was this shocking response that drove both Adams and Jefferson to, just like Mr. Obama said, go out and get their own copies of this Islamic book, the Quran. Remember that? Mr. Obama said, Adams and Jefferson both had copies of the Quran. Well, yeah, that's absolutely true. They wanted to see for themselves. For them, it was self-evident that when you read the Quran, you'll see why they behave the way they do. However, Adams and Jefferson had a fundamental disagreement about how to respond to this problem of Islamic terrorism. John Adams, as president, refused to use the Navy to fight the pirates because he knew if we got involved in a conflict with radical Islam, it was going to go on for years, and he thought the American people didn't have the stomach for it. Well, in contrast, Jefferson's long experience of dealing with these Barbary Muslim pirates as Secretary of State under George Washington and as Vice President under Adams led him to a different approach. Jefferson's attitude is that he would put an end to this kind of terrorism because he had seen the countries dealing with it for a lot of years. Now, while Adams thought Americans simply could not afford this war, Jefferson demanded that the United States stop paying the tribute, or this jizya tax, demanded by these Muslims in the Barbary states. So when Jefferson became president in 1801, the ruler of Tripoli demanded tribute which Jefferson refused. The result was the first Barbary War. American forces suffered setbacks. When the USS Philadelphia ran aground, the crew was captured. However, Stephen Decatur became an American hero when he led an effort to burn the ship so that the Muslims couldn't use it. Well, eventually, American forces were able to capture territory in that area and force a peace treaty, which freed this captured crew. Well, the victories of these early American armed forces were immortalized by a stanza of the Marine Corps hymn, which refers to the shores of Tripoli. I'm sure many of you know what the Marine Corps hymn is. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, we will fight our country's battles on the air and land and sea. That's where they came from, from fighting Muslim pirates. However, this conflict didn't end the threat to the United States. Within a few years of that treaty ending the war, the Barbary Muslim pirates were once again raiding American ships. And it would ultimately fall to a different president, Jefferson's fellow Virginia James Madison, to preside over a second Barbary War that would ultimately end the American payments to the Islamic corsairs of North Africa.
we're not going to pay you to not attack us. So Adams was right about the expense and the time required to confront Islamic piracy. However, ultimately, the problem was stopped when the United States was able to inflict a high enough cost to force aggressive Muslims to back down. If the United States had followed the European practice of simply paying off these Muslim attackers, the problem would have continued indefinitely. The willingness to use force and inflict casualties is the kind of attitude it'll take to answer the challenge because historically, that's the kind of attitude that make the Muslims say the price is too high for us to pay. This is how Islamic terrorism has been defeated every single time in the past. And as John Adams argued so many years ago, it's an open question whether the United States has the stomach for this kind of conflict. Well, our founding fathers knew Islam would never work in America because they understood this was a political system wrapped in the cloak of religion and the goal to bring America to Islam ruled by Sharia. It's always been that way. It's just who and what they are and has always been. But we have a very distinct advantage. Islam seems to be stuck in the 7th century. It's not allowed any new ideas. You know, there's a video where the Islamic State threatens more jihad tax in France. In this video, they say, very correctly, victory has been promised to us by our Creator, by our Lord. Well, in another video posted on Twitter, a militant with a French accent warns the people of France, we will be coming. We will come to crush your country. And that you promise victory for your people? That is for the people of the West, but victory has been promised to us by our Creator, by our Lord. So let's see just exactly how effective the God of Islam really is. This is the promise of their God in the Surah 839. It says, Make war on them until idolatry shall cease and God's religion shall reign supreme. In the Quran, this is the important one, in 4141, it says, and never will Allah grant to the unbelievers, that's non-Muslims, a way to triumph over the believers. Those are Muslims. And never will Allah grant to the unbelievers a way to triumph over the believers. This is the promise of their God. So let's look at history and see how effective this Islamic God has been. Muslims say at one time they were the most powerful, richest, and most advanced people in the world. From them arose four great empires, the Umayyad Empire, the Abbasid Empire, the Mongol Empire, and the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Well, let's take a look at those. The Umayyad Caliphate of Damascus started in 661, continued to expand rule over three continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia. But the victory that was promised to them by their creator, by their Lord, and the saying that Allah will never grant unbelievers a way to triumph over believers... Well, they killed a lot of innocent people, they killed each other, and they killed themselves, and in 750 their caliphate was over because Islam failed, the God of Islam failed. They were triumphed over by unbelievers. So they tried it again. The Abbasid Caliphate in 750 was destroyed by the Mongol invasion in 1258. This caliphate went on for a long time. However, more promises not kept. 
They killed a lot of innocent people. They killed each other. They killed themselves. And again, in 1258, the Mongols destroyed them. And again, Islam failed. The God of Islam failed because they were triumphed over by unbelievers again. The Ottoman Turkish Empire ended in the 1920s. Why? Because victory that was promised to them by their creator, by their Lord, and the saying, Allah will never grant unbelievers a way to triumph over believers, but they did, even though they killed a lot of innocent people, they killed each other, and they killed themselves. Again, Islam failed. The God of Islam failed again. Now, Islam claims there's a lot of reasons for the decline and the failures by the Muslims including the invasion of the Mongols, the Crusaders, the Western imperialism, and Israel, who, by the way, is their perpetual whipping boy of Islam. Unbelievers triumph over Islamic caliphates every single time for the last 1,500 years. This is not some new, unprecedented thing that the world has never seen, no matter what they tell you. An idea gaining ground in the Muslim world is that their low estate is due to Muslims turning away from God and that the remedy, therefore, is to become more Islamic. Now, when the real God, Yahweh, promises to do something, he never fails. When he says you're going to win in battle, you win. When he says something is going to come to pass, it comes to pass. He doesn't get close. It's not just right around in that area. The real God fulfills his word exactly as he said he would. And there's just about 4,000 years of countless prophecy confirmed by secular history to prove that. The real God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, never fails. Now true, there are more prophecies yet to come to pass because we're not done yet. But up to this point, he has not failed once. Now, that sends a powerful message. So, so far today, there have been four other attempts of an Islamic state or a caliphate. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Sudan, lately Afghanistan under the Taliban. None of them successfully, Islam has failed. And to make matters worse, the Muslims who desire this Islamic state is prepared to use violence to achieve it. Well, their reasoning goes something like this. That God's law is higher than man's law, and democracy is man-made. Therefore, an Islamic state, which is ruled in accordance with Allah's law, Sharia, is superior to democracy. In fact, democracy for them is a form of idolatry where you put man above Allah. Now, this rejection of democracy not only hinders an establishment in most Muslim countries, but some Muslims feel perfectly justified in using violence to create this Islamic state. They don't see the need to let the ballot box decide since God is above any man-made democracy. While some Muslims are peaceful people who interpret the Quran in a non-violent way, jihad and Sharia is still the goal and jihad still applies. They just use other non-violent methods of jihad to bring Sharia to the entire world. Remember, all Muslims want the world to be an Islamic state, ruled by Sharia law, if not by violence, then by other means. Surah 839 or somewhere in there. Remember, it says, Make war on them until idolatry shall cease and God's religion shall reign supreme. Well, another method of jihad is immigration. 
which leads to a Muslim majority, then they make the rules. And that rule is total respect for Muslims, and every human being must be ruled by Sharia law. For centuries, Muslims have declared jihad, holy war, against the enemies of jihad. According to them, and most of you know this, if they die in jihad, the reward is paradise, filled with fruit trees and the loving company of 72 virgins with high bosoms, which means they would be very young. It's somewhat similar to the ancient Viking belief of Van Halle, where the brave warriors go when they die in battle. None of the other major religions in practice today have this concept. Islam also failed because of its suppressing in women. Women are considered inferior to men, and in a hadith are described as mentally deficient. This is why one male witness is equal to two female witnesses in Islamic court. And the Surah in 434 from the Quran approves of things like wife beating. It says men have authority over women because God has made them superior to the other. Because they spend their wealth to maintain them, good women are obedient. They guard their unseen parts because God has guarded them. As for those from whom fear disobedience, admonish them, forsake them in beds apart, and beat them. So why does Islam continue to fail over and over again? Because Islam stifles science. For instance, every Muslim who's ever handled TNT, nitro, bullets, high-explosive bombs, rocket launchers, or been treated for cuts or injuries requiring stitches, taken antibiotics, vitamin capsules, or any other gel cap, or even eaten a three musketeer bar, has been contaminated with a pork product. The ironic part is that when suicide bombers blow themselves up, their body parts are impregnated with gelatin and or glycerin from these explosives. Both gelatin and glycerin are manufactured from pig and cow bones worldwide. Ergo, they will never be accepted by Allah. Or, maybe, just maybe, because the Islamic God fails so much, maybe he'll fail to notice that they blew themselves up with pork products and let them in anyway, right? There's always that hope. Well, anyway, for science to flourish, there, <laughs> there has to be a tolerance of new ideas, which is non-existent in the Islamic world. Ideas, both scientific and philosophical, need to be freely debated so that good ideas are adopted and bad ones are thrown out. This kind of religious repression of ideas can't happen in the West because there's a clear separation of church and state. Now, before you get excited by that statement, let me qualify that. The separation was due to these famous words from Jesus Christ not from the anti-God left in this country. Here's what Jesus said. Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God the things that are God's. This is not state-imposed separation. This is God who tells us not to mix the ways of God with the ways of man. Now, let me make something clear here, that most of the scientists the poets, the philosophers in Islam's golden age, that's the age that they considered to be when they prospered the most, the time of the Abbasid Caliphate, 
Most of these people who brought these new ideas and actually prospered Islam were either Jews, Christians, or Muslims who were suspected of apostasy or blasphemy. Many of these people suffered harassment or even death. So if science did flourish during this golden age, it was in spite of Islam, not because of it. Truth is, jihad is the ultimate expression of failure. Why? Because rejecting Islam to accept another faith or even become an atheist brings with it the threat of death. It's the mark of a religion that believes any deviation from its dogma gives it the right to kill in order to justify itself. Because the Quran is a guide to war. And I'll say again, all Muslims want an Islamic state ruled by Sharia. All. That's why they don't denounce terrorist attacks. Because just like John Brennan, director of the CIA, says that jihad is a legitimate tenet of Islam. Some Muslims just have different ideas on how to do that. This is why Muslims don't want to condemn these terrorist attacks. For Muslims, all forms of jihad are a legitimate tenet of Islam. And jihad is the name given to every activity and movement in the way of Allah. It means endeavoring to make justice superior and dominant. In other words, jihad has to do with action in Islam. It's the power of Islam to act. The word jihad is interpreted as holy war in Western languages. However, the meaning of the word, the real meaning of the word jihad, is not war. It's to fight for the sake of Allah. It's also a sort of jihad, but in general terms, this word includes any kind of action taken to make the religion of Allah go everywhere, to make the world an Islamic state ruled by Sharia by any means, not just violence. And there's a reason why Islam can't work in America, because Islam is a government and a religion at the same time. There's groups in America that scream about Christians and government mixing, that we have to remove religion from every aspect of our public space. And in the same breath, they say we have to welcome Islam in our country, when Islam will not, cannot, separate religion and state. How can a religion that requires the government to be ruled by religion have a place in American society, or for that matter, any free society? You see, this is the fatal flaw in the progressive argument of what they're demanding makes no sense. For Islam to be able to practice their religion in America, or for that matter, any society, the government has to be changed to Sharia law. It's required for the free practice of their religion. It's not just a part of Islam. It's the very foundation of their religion. And when people say we must allow Islam in the free practice of their religion, they seem to have no idea what they're calling for. If there was a religion that called for the rape of kids under five, Americans would say, freedom of religion says that we're allowed to do this because it's part of our religion. But if you say, no, they can't do that because it's against the law, well, Sharia calls for the crucifixion and stoning, amputations of hands and feet. Islam says it's not against the law to rape non-Muslim women. And all of these things are against American law. And it's all of Islam, not radical Islam. 
it's all of Islam that has to live by Sharia law. So do we have limits to freedom of religion? Or do we allow it in the framework of our laws? Now, I know this can be a slippery slope, but we have to be able to draw the line somewhere. Our founding fathers didn't invite Islam to come to America. Why? Because they knew firsthand what Islam is. Let me give you an example of this. Bridget Gabriel, who's a world-renowned national security expert, her concentration is on the <coughs> explosive rise of Islamic terrorism. She notes that there are 1.2 billion Muslims in the world. Of them, intelligence agencies say 15 to 25% are Orthodox Muslims, meaning they actually follow the teachings of the Quran. That leaves 75% of Muslim being uh, peaceful people, right? Well, when you look at 15 to 25% of the world's Muslim population, you're looking at 180 million to 300 million people dedicated to the destruction of Western civilization. This is the same number as the population of the United States. And the result of these numbers are 27,500 terrorist attacks worldwide committed by faithful Muslims since 9-11. These are not white Christian terrorists. These are Muslims. So let me give you an example of some other forms of jihad. This is being reported by Bridget Gabriel at Breitbart News. Here's what she writes. You could feel the excitement in the air. To finally have a moderate Muslim leader, a woman to boot, wrapped in the American flag, appearing on Fox News with Megyn Kelly, talking about her love for this country and what a loyal citizen she is. This leader even started a Republican-Muslim coalition, a Republican Party's answer to prayer, and even called Donald Trump to join her at a mosque of his choosing to see for himself how patriotic the American Muslim community is. Wow! Finally, what everyone has waited for is becoming reality. Saba Hamid has emerged to save the day. Who is Saba Hamid? She's a former Democratic candidate for Congress who ran in 2012 on a platform that she would bring all U.S. soldiers home from the Middle East and Afghanistan because, in her view, they don't need to be there. She got less than a third of a percent of the vote and then switched to the Republican Party, claiming it better represented her pro-life, pro-business, pro-traditional family values, and pro-defense, pro-trade, pro-business, so if she's so pro-everything, like she says, it leads one to ask the question, what was she doing with the Democrats in the first place? Saba Hamid, who claims to be such a patriotic American wrapped in our American flag, would do well to explain why she was so chummy with Mohammed Mohammed, the Portland Christmas tree bomber, so much that she showed up at his trial to support him and was thrown out of one of his court hearings for contempt. Saba Amin's true agenda can be found in her past comments she made about Islamic terrorists. She calls them anti-Islamic actions and then compared them to the Christian terrorists of the CIA and the American military who say they have innocent blood on their hands. Well, Hamid, who has a law degree and worked for the U.S. Patent Office, apparently couldn't distinguish between terrorism based on religious belief as was the case with the San Bernardino attacks and U.S. government agency and armed forces that have no religious affiliation. 
the fact that she can conflate these two and somehow label our country's efforts to self-defense as terrorist actions are worthy of comparison with Islamic radicals, which really shows her true intent. She once told Glenn Beck, Quran in hand, that her Islamic faith is all she has and refused to denounce the brutal, sexist aspects of Sharia law, saying all things are a mixture of good and bad. Party affiliation for Hamid appears secondary to an Islamic pro-Sharia anti-U.S. agenda. And despite her claims of being a Republican, she marched with Occupy Portland, which had a very strong anti-Israel platform. She spoke at one of their rallies and said that the world's Muslims hate the U.S. because of its policies and that it's the U.S. that must change. She's been banned from the Oregon Tea Party and Washington County Republicans for false accusations and fabricating death threats she claims came from the Tea Party members, but which originated from her. So what we have in Sabah Hamid is an example of the highest level of sophisticated deception by an Islamist trying to insert themselves into the national security discussion, and she isn't the first one. Do you remember Abraham Al-Moody and Anwar Al-Waki, who initially appeared on the American scene as moderate Muslims? They were invited to speak at the White House and at the Pentagon with friends at the highest level. President Bush and President Clinton, in the case of Al-Moody, before their terrorist ties were eventually revealed, Al-Moody is currently serving 23 years in prison, and Al-Waki is dead, assassinated by our own government and by the same people who were taken in by the lies that were somehow moderate. Well, the Council of Foreign Relations is another example of what appears to be a moderate Muslim group speaking on behalf of the Muslim community, despite the fact that a number of their leaders and members have been arrested, imprisoned, exiled, and charged with terrorism-related charges. No, that can't be. Well, on the one hand... Care said they were against all forms of unjustified violence, but refused to denounce bin Laden by name. Once their real agenda was exposed on numerous occasions, it was always the same. U.S. actions and policies in the Middle East triggered the 9-11 tax. And in order to prevent further attacks, they proposed solutions was to remove U.S. soldiers from the Middle East cease U.S. support of Israel and allow the Palestinians free reign to destroy the Jewish homeland. In other words, we're not really sorry about 9-11 or Madrid or London or Paris or Sydney or San Bernardino or Belgium and on and on and on. They say we're not really sorry because according to them, you brought this on yourselves. We have recognized figures like Sabah Hamid, exposed for what they are, Islamists who support patriotic platitudes, but who justify acts of terrorism and whose intent is nothing less than a worldwide caliphate that would undo America from within. That was her whole goal of running for office. She wants to establish Sharia formally as the standard for Muslim with friends like this who needs enemies. Because we have to understand... Islam is a political system designed by religion. You can't have one without the other. 
In order for Muslims to be able to practice their religion, they must be ruled by Sharia, governed by Islam. Muslims cannot live in a system that is set up by man. It's against their religion. Democracy is called man-made, not of God. According to this religion of peace, to be able to practice their religion, they must rule over all non-Muslims, and that rule must be Sharia law. That's why it says in the Hadith, when you meet your enemies who are polytheists, they're saying Christians, invite them to three courses of action. If they respond to one of these, you also accept it and withhold yourself from doing them any harm. The first one, invite them to accept Islam. If they respond to you, accept it from them and desist from fighting against them. If they refuse to accept Islam, demand from them the jizya tax. If they agree to pay, accept it from them and hold off your hands. If they refuse to pay the tax, seek Allah's help and fight them. So here's the proof that non-Muslims are intended to be subordinate to Muslims. Islam says that Muslims are superior to every other man, woman, and child on earth, and that they are to rule over them. You see, people in Western culture and non-Christian know enough about Christianity and the Bible to know things like, love thy neighbor as thyself. And because they really don't know either the Bible or the Quran, they assume that all religions are the same, that every religion is a religion of peace, that Islam must be too. Why? Because Muslims say so. And it confirms their belief that all religions are the same. And despite what those rocket scientists rationalize in their own head, they're not the same. In fact, far from it. So when you hear people in the news like Chuck Todd or Lester Holt or even Paul Ryan or anyone else say they have the right to exercise religion and Islam is a religion of peace, what they're really saying is they have no idea what they're talking about. Jihad Watch is reporting that the Paris Jihad killer's wife says as long as you continue to offend Islam and Muslims, you'll be potential targets. Well, the obvious solution, according to Western intelligentsia, is to stop doing anything that might offend Muslims or Islam. Barack Obama said the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. Hillary Clinton, when she lied to the American people about the video causing Chris Stevens' death, she said, we're going to have the filmmaker arrested. Well, the leader of free societies are eagerly lining up to surrender to Islam, Because that's what Islam requires. All people must submit to Islam. And if you don't, as long as you continue to offend Islam and Muslims, you'll be potential targets. And not just cops and Jews, but everyone. In fact, the proof of that comes from a Muslim student association demanding a zero-tolerance policy explicitly for Islamophobic speech. Here again... We see how leftists and Islamic supremacists use the term Islamophobia for attacks on innocent civilians which have no justification under any circumstances and for an honest examination of how Islamic jihadists use the text and the teaching of Islam to incite hatred and violence. The goal? 
to allow the jihadists to advance unimpeded and unimposed. Here's what comes from the Muslim Student Association of America and Canada, or MSA, also known as MSA National. Muslim Student Association demands all Islamophobic speech be punished. This is in America. The Muslim Student Association of San Diego State University is demanding the administrators combat Islamophobia by developing this zero-tolerance policy explicitly for Islamophobic speech and actions. The demands, modeled after a similar one issued by a black student association on campus across the nation, were lodged after a female Muslim student was allegedly attacked by a white man in a campus parking lot on the afternoon of November 19th, about a week after the Paris attacks, which killed 130 people. Well, despite the reports of several witnesses stood by and did nothing as the attacker grabbed the woman's hajib, as well as a police sketch of the alleged attacker, a police investigation could not identify a suspect, according to the San Diego Union-Tribune. Meanwhile, the female student who said she was attacked has not been identified, but she told the executive director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations in San Diego her attacker grabbed her from behind, called her a terrorist, choked her with the hijab, and told her to get out of his country. Well, the demand that university adopt a zero-tolerance policy toward Islamic speech, mandatory bystanding training, developing more courses on Islam, and increasing funding for the Center for International Relations. This story, consequently, less than two months later, was exposed for being a hoax. She lied. My goodness. All right, well, we're going to talk about this Captagon. Some of you already know what Captagon is. Some of you may not. We're going to talk about both sides of this, exactly what it is and how it's being used but first, this break, we'll be right back with this discussion on Captagon. Don't go away. GoDaddy offers everything you need to make a name for yourself on the web, from domain names and website builders to complete e-commerce solutions. We've earned our place as the world's number one accredited domain registrar by delivering world-class products at competitive prices and support them with industry-best services delivered 24-7, 365. We're proud to serve our customers from locations around the world. Sign up now at WDZook.com and get your domain name as low as $5.99 a year. Sign up now at WDeanShook.com. Go, Daddy. Go, Daddy. Hey, are those Cape Cod chips you're eating? Yeah. You know where they make those things? Uh... Cape Cod, I assume. You're darn right they make them in Cape Cod. Right on Breeds Hill Road in Hyannis, down the street from the mall. Do you know what else they make in Cape Cod? Uh... Belts. Belts with little whales on them. That's cool. No, it's not cool. The whale belts are an embarrassment. The chips are delicious. They're a local treasure. We're deeply proud of them. Now, can I have a chip, please? Sure. Cape Cod chips. Back home, we're a pretty big deal. My lover's got you. He's a giggle at a funeral Knows everybody's disapproval I should have worshipped him sooner If the heavens ever did speak He 
So what is Captagon? Well, they say it's what's fueling the brutality we see in today's caliphate. I'm going to tell you what the corporate media won't tell you. A lot of people don't know. I've never even heard of this. Captagon is a drug. It's known as phenethylene. It's an inferior amphetamine. According to Carl Hart, a professor of psychology and psychiatry at Columbia University, he says it's a mild form of Adderall. It was used in the 1960s and 70s to treat people with attention deficit disorder. And despite fizzling out in the United States, the drug has been popular in the Middle East for some time. And just like taking an amphetamine, taking Captagon increases a person's blood pressure, heart rate, and alertness. Other effects are similar to those of just about any other type of amphetamine. However, as for the use of Captagon by ISIS, it's also possible that what the fighters are actually taking is not Captagon. As far as I know, no one has actually tested the stuff to make sure what's being sold is. An abuse of this has been a problem in Saudi Arabia now for over a decade. Being reported by both DC Clothesline and Anti-Media, they say... It's dubbed the jihadist drug. The Captagon is rapidly flowing through the Middle East. It's said to be fueling the bloody conflict in Syria. French media recently reported that Paris attackers have been taking the drug. Well, last week, Turkish anti-narcotics police seized 11 million Captagon pills in a haul that weighed almost two tons. It was set to ship to Gulf countries. Widely banned since the mid-80s, the pills provide a cheap, long-lasting high, and it's very addictive. They also have the potential to cause psychosis and brain damage. The production of the drug, which keeps fighters awake for very long periods of time, is said to be providing income for all factions involved in the Syrian war. During the last year, shipments of Captagon have been seized on the way to the West Bank, Jordan, Sudan, Syria, and in the Gulf. In October, Anti-Media reported that a Saudi prince who was arrested for trying to smuggle two tons of the drug onto a plane. As Syria has been engulfed in war, smugglers of this little-known, highly addictive pills have been forced to find alternate routes through Lebanon. Lebanese journalist Rwanda Mortada has spent 10 years investigating crime, corruption, and the war in Syria. He did a documentary for Journeyman Pictures called The Drug Fueling the Conflict in Syria. Mortada follows the Captagon Trail from users on the battlefield to traffickers on the Lebanese smuggling routes to the kingpins in the top of the supply chain. There was no fear anymore. Since the Syrian war began, Police in the region have continued to seize record-breaking numbers of these pills. Lebanon's biggest haul to date was a whopping 50 million tablets with a street value of 300 million weighing 4 tons en route to Dubai. In Mortada's documentary, men in Beirut are shown crushing the pills and chopping them into lines. They describe the effects of better-than-cocaine and really strong like morphine for really strong pains. Their experience points to why Captagon has become the drug of choice for some Syrian fighters. There was no fear anymore, according to one ex-fighter. It stops you feeling anything, you know? It makes you numb, numb. 
If there were ten people in front of you, he went on to say, you could catch and kill them. You were awake all the time. Since 2013, Captagon smugglers in Lebanon have skyrocketed. The Syrian war has not only pushed smugglers through the country, but has allowed gangs to set up makeshift Captagon factories in the country itself. Portada's documentary is the first time an illegal factory has ever been filmed. It shows the pills being packaged and disguised in packages of tissues. Factory workers reveal that they use vegetables, bread, and hair gel for smuggling in Lebanon's homegrown Captagon trade. Shia militant group Hezbollah, currently fighting in Syria for the Assad regime, has also been accused of being involved in the trade after two factories were discovered on their premises. Abu Zeus, a businessman who looks like any other wealthy businessman, has been funding Captagon factories for years. He fled Syria when the war began, now resides in Europe. He took Motada months to persuade him to an interview. And described as the top of the supply chain, Abu Zeus boasts on camera of a $6 million profit last year from trading these small pills. The Syrian brigades that have publicly named his as a benefactor number in tens of thousands, according to Mortada. Opposed to both the regime and the jihadist groups, Abu Zeus brags of keeping the secular groups in Syria standing on their feet. He boasts of supporting around 12,000 armed men, and some militant leaders give it out, he says, fighters taking 30 to 40 pills at a time. He said, if you take too much, you can't think of anything but killing. This would explain why these terrorists laugh and seem to have so much fun handcuffing men they deem to be gay and throw them off the high-rise building or burn people alive in a cage and laugh and have such a good time doing it. The Saudis love the drug because of the country's alcohol ban, and they admit that selling to them has made him a great deal of money. He's adamant that the drug profits counter the money from Saudi Arabia that's believed funding the jihadist groups and destroying Syria. The truth is, the country that exports terrorism to the Middle East and the protector of terrorism is Saudi Arabia, he said. He continued, The fight is not a revolution anymore. It's a fight between seculars and Salafists. A fight between countries. Going some way toward explaining why Captagon is tailor-made for the battlefield and why some have to rely on the drug after five years of fighting, another fighter describes the drug effects as saying, You don't have any problems. You don't even think about sleeping or leaving the checkpoint. It gives you courage and power, he said. This begs the question, with thousands of Syrians being allowed into the U.S., will they bring this drug with them? But you know the progressives don't seem to even take this kind of stuff in consideration. So why are progressives so quick to defend Islam? Even most Democrats say Islam is a religion of peace. Why? Are they ignorant, or do they share the same basic ideology? Well, the Counter-Jihad Report wrote an article that explains the marriage of the left and this culture of death. Let's start with the fact that the political left, the socialist communist agenda, is responsible for more murders in the last 90 years than all ideologies combined, including Islamic Jihad, from Lenin to Mao Zedong to Pol Pot to Adolf Hitler, 
to Stalin. The communists and socialists in the 20th century have killed tens of millions of people in brutal and barbaric ways. Elites from the political left say these extreme examples of Stalin and Hitler are not related to their efforts to bring equality and justice to the average man and woman. And they would never support such treatment of people. Well, this soft-spoken language of socialism is no less dangerous because these same ideas laid the foundations for the likes of Stalin and Hitler and have for over 90 years. We must also begin with the fact that America was founded on the principle that God gave us our right to life and, therefore, each of us has a value and dignity in the eyes of God. The unalienable right, as written by Thomas Jefferson in our Declaration of Independence, is defined in legal dictionaries in the 1800s to mean a right that could not be taken away from you even if you tried to give it up. When free people surrender the right to life in any manner, we surrender it for all of us. Tyranny knows no boundaries. The programs and policies of the political left, or the progressives, if you will, give no heed to God and call for the extermination of the unwanted in society. A notable point is the darling of the left, George Bernard Shaw, who acknowledges his support for the Hitler regime and for killing people who could not justify their existence. It's the same ideology as Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger. Shaw says, I think it would be a good idea that everybody come before a properly appointed board every five years and say, Sir or Madam, would you be kind enough to justify your existence? The implications of this kind of statement and his broader comments on this matter exemplify the mindset and the darkness of the political left. Whether it be for abortions in China or the promotion of abortion in the United States, the tune of 1.2 million children killed every year and over 57 million since Roe versus Wade, to programs which promote the killing of elderly who are past their functional use people who are mentally ill, the disabled, political left has a recorded history of willingness to kill unjustly. One can think of a few more institutional evils, like putting cover emphasis on euthanasia by calling it dying with dignity, and that doesn't minimize the effect on society by attempting to control when the lives of its citizens should end. There's also a more subtle angle on the left's culture of death. Their silence toward the culture of life. From the 1600s, when pilgrims and settlers came to places like Plymouth and Jamestown, the Bible was the first and primary book used to teach children moral principles and guide them in their lives. And it's also the moral guide. Americans were admonished by our founders in this nation, the New England premiere, and other books like it followed which taught biblical principles to school children across the nation right up through the 1930s. Principles like love thy neighbor were taught to our children. They learned self-esteem, which came from knowing that the creator of the universe sees them and loves them. Therefore, they have value. In the 1930s, the progressives began working diligently 
to remove God from our classroom, from the public square, in direct contradiction to the ideas that were espoused in our Declaration and against the legal framework of the Constitution. By intentionally removing the principles which teach the dignity and importance of life, the political left made it easier for the culture of death to creep into our society. Just this week, State Department spokeswoman Maria Harf stated on a television interview, ISIS can only be stopped if we get to the root cause of the problem, which she says is a lack of jobs or because of climate change. This kind of soft-mindedness promotes the culture of death of this Islamic movement and others for that matter because it intentionally refuses to address the massive threats to humans across the globe. This culture of death in Islam is not a difficult one to uncover. There's no disagreement among the scholars of Islam that it's a permanent obligation upon the Muslim community to wage jihad until the entire world is subordinate to Islamic law, Sharia. Islamic law specifically calls for beheadings, stonings, crucifixion, and other punishments like this. Islam teaches because Allah commanded it that Muslims cannot take Jews and Christians for friends. Quran 5.51 says, Take not the Jews and Christians for friends or as protectors, although they can pretend to befriend them if it suits their purpose. The hatred that energizes the violence is part of the ideology as well. And all of this is taught at the first grade level in Islamic schools around the world today. The jihadists teach toddlers to hate and kill non-Muslims for the sake of Allah. There's a video where a small girl speaks succinctly about her hatred for the Jews. And in Iran, huge crowds chant, Death to America! But the more compelling evidence is the reality of what we see on the ground daily. That's the example of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Across the globe, the world witnesses Islamic jihadists beheading children, putting their heads on stakes, burning people alive, burying women up to their chest and stoning them to death, and similar barbaric behavior. And the Muslim world, for the most part, is silent. Well, according to the DHS, tracking missing refugees violates their constitutional rights. Well, a Syrian refugee recently resettled in Louisiana had gone missing, according to WND. State officials were surprised to find out the Federal Homeland Security agents did not track the whereabouts of foreign refugees out of respect for their constitutional rights. The refugee was settled at the Boston Rogue area in June by Catholic Charities, a subcontractor that resettles thousands of refugees in the U.S. every year for the federal government and the United States. Homeland Security said the refugee could not be kept up with because of his constitutional rights. This, according to a spokesman for Vitter and told the Hayride. Despite a majority of Americans opposing the Syrian refugee program, 53%, President Obama has made the policy a priority and derided his opponents as fear-mongers. He starts calling us names. You're fear-mongers. You're against helping widows and orphans, he said. It's shameful that conservatives would place a religious test on the refugees and accept only Christians from Syria and Iraq. Well, this despite the fact that Obama appears to have a religious test of his own. 
accepting almost exclusively Muslims from Syria. More than 97% of the nearly 2,200 Syrians taken by the U.S. so far, only 53 have been Christians. Why are the most savagely persecuted minority in the Middle East, according to independent trackers like Open Doors in 21st century, being excluded? And is it just a coincidence that there have been more mass shootings under the Obama administration than any time since Reagan? In Ronald Reagan's time, from 1981 to 1989, we saw 11 mass shootings with 101 fatalities. In Bill Clinton's time, from 1993 to 2001, there were 23 mass shootings and 141 fatalities. During Barack Obama's time, we saw 162 mass shootings with 864 fatalities. So is this epic failure of the president, or is there more to this? Aaron and Melissa Dykes points out that obviously this isn't so easily simplified as more guns in the hands of crazy people, the way the media likes to spin it. We have more gun laws now than we had before. Less types of gun are legally available to the average citizen than ever before. We also have more gun-free zones, where just by the way most of these shootings happen. Because mass shootings do not follow laws or care about zones, obviously, so that's not it. While the Dykes have talked about pharmaceutical use playing a part in these shootings, there seems to be something else going on here, especially when you consider that five of the 12 deadliest mass shootings in American history have occurred during Barack Hussein Obama's first term. That's almost half. And for those who understand his Saul Alinsky tactics and his Marxist thoughts, you can clearly see that he's one that encourages these kinds of shootings in order to advance a gun-grabbing agenda in violation of the Constitution and the rights of the people. And I don't just say that flippantly. I say that because after a mass shooting, what's the first thing he says? Gun control, gun control, gun control. Following the controversial Sandy Hook shootings, Obama implemented 23 executive actions. He followed up just months later with two more executive actions. After every single Islamic jihadist attack on U.S. soil, he fails to identify the ideology that he loves so much as the reason behind the killings. Instead, he simply attacks gun owners and the rights of gun owners. In fact, he openly lies to the world about mass shooting, claiming that they don't happen in other countries. He did this recently in, in a city where a mass shooting by Islamic jihadists claimed the lives of nearly 130 people and injured hundreds. Just one more year to go in his second term, Obama has said that he will give sustained attention to gun control. Well, hold on to your guns, America. Keep your powder dry. This is going to be one heck of a year to stare down any tyranny and terror on our own soil. Now, let me remind you of this. Jimmy Carter banned Muslims and Iranians from entering the U.S. Now, I bet the left doesn't want to tell you this. During the Iranian hostage crisis, Carter issued a number of orders to put pressure on Iran. Among these, Iranians were banned from entering the United States unless they opposed the Shiite Islam regime or had a medical emergency. 
there was a religious test to his band. Here's what Jimmy Carter said back in 1980. Secretary of State, the Attorney General, will invalidate all visas issued to Iranian citizens for future entry into the United States effective today. We will not reissue visas, nor will we issue new visas, except for compelling and proven humanitarian reasons or where the national interest of our country requires it. The directive will be interpreted very strictly. Well, apparently, barring people from a terrorist country is not against our values. After all, it may have been who we are, either that a Carter was a racist monster just like Trump, right? Well, meanwhile, here's how the Iranian students in the U.S. were treated. Carter ordered 50,000 Iranian students in U.S. to report to immigration office with a view to deport those in violation of their visas. On 27 December 1979, U.S. Appeal Court allows deportation of Iranian students found in violation. In November of 79, the Attorney General had given all Iranian students one month to report to the local immigration office. Around 7,000 were found in violation of their visas. Around 15,000 Iranians were forced to leave the U.S. How is it racist or Islamophobic to put a hold on terrorists coming into this country until we get this stuff figured out? Well, a former intelligence chairman warns that this is stealth jihad and it's moving through the West. Former House Intelligence Pete Hoekstra is genuinely worried about the fundamental changes that President Barack Obama has made to the American foreign policy. According to a 28-minute exclusive video by the Daily Caller Foundation, he explains this. Now, I was going to play you this clip, but it's rather long and we just don't have time to play the whole thing. But President Obama, who warmly spoke about Islam during his speech at a mosque, highlighting the contributions that Muslims had made to the fabric of American society that Islam has always been a part of America, he said. Detailing the beginnings of the religion among African slaves brought to America, he pointed out that Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Virginia State Statute for Religious Freedom that Mohammedism should have his faith protected in the United States. Really? During his speech, he praised the religion for being a religion of peace, not the hate preached by groups like ISIS. Obama reminded the audience, opponents of Thomas Jefferson accused him of being a Muslim. Obama said, I was not the first. It's true, look it up, I'm in good company. Well, that's not the reason that our founding fathers had copies of the Quran. And he went on to say, Jefferson and John Adams had their own copies of the Quran, he said. Benjamin Franklin wrote that even if the Mufti of Constantinople were to send a missionary to preach to us, that he would find a pulpit in his service. Really? Our Constitution says we're allowed to practice our religion freely, right? Freedom of religion? Well, and let me finish up with this story here that uh, some of you may have heard this, some of you may not have. According to the Jerusalem Post, Israel News, Algeria quoted sources as saying the Obama has already discussed the issue of running for Secretary General of the United Nations. And he's talked about this with Democrats, Republican, and Jewish officials in the U.S., now, Netanyahu is reportedly planning some personal payback. According to the Kuwaiti newspaper Al Jarida, Netanyahu will make common sense with moderate Arab governments in order to sabotage Obama's plan to succeed Ban Ki-moon when the South Korean diplomat ends his term in the United Nations as Secretary General. The source said that once Netanyahu got wind of Obama's plan, 
the Prime Minister began to make efforts to submarine what he has referred to as the Obama Project. Netanyahu is quoted in the Kuwaiti Daily as telling associates, wasn't eight years of having Obama in office enough? Eight years during which he ignored Israel, and now he wants to be in a position that he's able to cause more hardship in the international arena? The newspaper cited the widely acknowledged fact that personal ties between Netanyahu and Obama have frayed. Obama's the worst president Israel has had to deal with and the worst president for the Middle East and its allies. A source close to Netanyahu did not deny to Algerida that the premier is aiming to torpedo the Obama project, noting that his presidency was characterized by Washington moving closer to the Muslim Brotherhood, toppling the regime of Mubarak, and attempts to ally himself with political Islam. Boy, he's telling the truth. Well, let me say thank you to everybody who joined me, and don't forget, you can download the End Time News Radio app. For your iPhone or your Android, it's available on Google Play or the App Store. It's absolutely free. There's no charge. Just go in and download it right on your phone, and you can listen to End Time News anytime, anywhere. Until then, I'll see you next time. Thank you very much. You can get these full stories and more at wdeanshook.com. That's wdeanshook.com.